Welcome and thank you for taking the time to listen to the Word of God released through Randolph Barnwell. Randolph is the founder and senior elder of Gate Ministries Durban Central. Be encouraged to access free additional resources for your edification at randolphbonnell.com. Great grace, peace, and mercy from Christ be multiplied to you as you listen to this teaching. We are dealing with principles of Passover. We are still under the broad heading of firstborn sonship and the principles of, of Passover. And um, we, we started discussing escaping Egypt. Everyone say escape Egypt. Okay, if you want to get theological, it's the Exodus. The book of Exodus in the, in the Bible. But I, I, I like to use the term escape. There's a reality that you must escape from. You must run out from. Um, the Exodus or the escape from Egypt is a necessary journey that every believer must take. We've got to understand what Egypt represents to us and leave that domain. In the words of God through Moses to Pharaoh, he says to him, Israel is my firstborn son. Exodus 4 verse 22 and 23. Israel is my firstborn son, so I say to you, let my son go that he might serve me, but you have refused to let him go, so I will kill your firstborn. And I said this to you last week, the release of Egypt, or the release of Israel from Egypt, was about the release of God's son, Israel. More than a son, he's a firstborn son. The entire nation is ascribed the singular description of son. So son is a corporate entity. Israel, whole nation, many people, is my son, right? Let my son go, my firstborn son. So the exodus was about leaving a, an identity of slavery and coming into the emergence of sonship. Right? That is the bedrock of the exodus. That is the fundamental uh, uh, view that you must have of Israel leaving Egypt. I'm extracting out from a place of restriction... A mentality for my son. He must come out of slavery and he must come into firstborn sonship. Before he comes out, I will, I will command him to celebrate the Passover. And I said to you last week, the Passover signaled the, the start of a process that um, would, for them, take 40 years of leaving Slavery and coming out of that and entering into one's inheritance. To celebrate the Passover was absolutely essential. It was non-negotiable. For it was the immunity. The lamb had to be sacrificed. Its blood spread on the doorposts and the lintels. So God says, I preserve your firstborn in your house. Every other house with no blood, I kill the firstborn of men and of animals. So there was a destruction of the firstborn um, reality, of the firstborn principle within a nation called Egypt that enslaved the firstborn of God. So God is saying firstborn for firstborn. You keep my firstborn captive, I kill your firstborn. 
Um, so in Israel, celebrating this important meal, the Passover, they are ensuring for them the preservation of an identity. Passover, apart from immunity and keeping you safe from the angel of death, for me, it encapsulates this idea of the preservation of my true identity in God. And I will not get into it, unfortunately, this today. I thought I would. There's still too much background to give today. And probably by next week, we'll get into Passover principles from Exodus chapter 12. But before we get there, you've got to understand what you're leaving. You've got to understand the nature of Egypt. You've got to understand the nature of its ruler, Pharaoh. Right? And I said to you, in uh, the, the verse that I should have given you last week, it's in your notes, you'll get the notes later on. Uh, Psalm 136 verse 10, God says, To him who smote the Egyptians in the firstborn. How did God, God cripple Egypt? God says, I cripple a whole empire by doing one thing. I simply kill their firstborn. If you kill the firstborn, you neutralize the potency of a great empire. The opposite is also true then. If you preserve the firstborn, consolidate and entrench it, you give power to a whole entity. God says, I, I, I cripple Egypt. I bring it to its knees by killing the firstborn. Remember the ten plagues. But the ten plague, the killing of the firstborn, was the final decider for Pharaoh. Okay, let them go. Right? You break the power of intimidation. You break the power of bondage. You break the power of limitation and restriction of anything that holds God's, keep, God's people captive by killing its firstborn entity so that God's firstborn could emerge. And God says this in, in Numbers 3.13, just reminding you, for all the firstborn are mine, on the day that I struck down the firstborn of the land of Egypt, I sanctified to myself all the firstborn of Israel. So there are two processes that are bilateral almost happening simultaneously. They're juxtaposed and juxtapositioned next to the other. You've got to see this. God says, in striking the firstborn of Egypt, he says here, I set apart for myself the firstborn of Israel. Right? I set apart for myself the firstborn of Israel. And I'm almost tempted to get into it. But you, I, I told you last week to start studying Exodus 12. You must get into that this entire week. For there God, it's a long chapter, eh? But God painstakingly gave clear instructions on the night before they left. What was the leaving about? The leaving was all about the preservation of an identity. The breaking of a wrong mentality, which is slavery, which for them was 430 years of slavery. The, the killing of that mindset, for as a man thinks in his heart, so easy. So God has got to change the way they think. So if you're going to come out of wrong thinking... And come into your fullness as God's firstborn son. You've got to observe the principles of the Passover. Right? So when you read Exodus 12 in the week, read it with that mindset. Don't read the story. Look for the principle and say, what is in here that God is encouraging encouraged Israel to do, is also encouraging me to do. So when you read the chapter, extrapolate or extract the principle to be observed so that your identity as a firstborn son could be preserved and enhanced. Amen? 
literally every verse got something to say there. So a lot of homework, a lot of reading this week. Even on the plane to Australia, there's some reading to do. <laughs> eh? That should get you, you should have got the whole sermon by then. By the time you land, you got everything. <laughs> Amen. I told you last week, there are several scriptures. There are too many to mention. Uh, in your notes, I've mentioned about 12 or 13 of them that define Egypt like this. It says, God would repetitively say to them, I took you out of Egypt, the land of bondage, Egypt, the house of slavery. Egypt, the house of slavery. Numerous scriptures. Egypt, the house of bondage. Egypt, the house. Everyone say Egypt is a house. Egypt's not just a land. It's not just a political empire. Egypt is a bayith. The Hebrew word for house is bayith. It equates to the Greek concept in the New Testament, oikos. The Greek word for house in the New Testament is oikos. The Hebrew term in the Old Testament is bahith. Both bahith and oikos do not relate to the structure of a dwelling like house. It refers to the quality of relationships that exist in the house. So Paul would say, for the church is the house of God. When we say the church is the house of God, we are saying it's the family of God. And what do you need to, have to, to, to be constituted as a family? You need a father and sons. Okay. The Greek word for father is pater. The Greek word for family is patria. Patria is a derivative in the Greek from pater. In other words, you can never ever have the Greek word patria, which means family, without having the Greek word pate, which means father. You know, in, 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 Greek, in languages, one word is derived from another. So you get the root meaning vested in the core concept. And pate is the core or the root for patria. No pate, no patria. No father, no family. Right? No father, no family. Apply this now to Egypt. Egypt is the house of what? It's got fathers and sons. Bayith. There's a fathering system going on there. But it's designed to keep the son enslaved. It's designed to restrict the son from developing into fullness and maturity. By faith. Moses, it says in Hebrews 11, he refused to be called what? Son of who? Pharaoh's daughter. Question, does Egypt, does an Egyptian styled system of church have fathers and sons? Yes. Fathers and sons is not unique to true churches. Literally every false system operates by fathers and sons. Remember Acts 19. Sceva was who? Sceva was a high priest, a Jewish high priest. What business do you have being a high priest in Acts 19? You should be in the Old Testament. What business do you still have being a Jewish high priest, maintaining the Old Testament mosaic system of animal sacrifices, and Jesus has already been crucified as the perfect Lamb of God in the Gospels already. And we are in Acts 19, and you still find a practicing 
Jewish high priest and his name is Giva. He's doing something religious, but something not recognized in the heavens. It's, it's works, but not relevant. Does he have sons? Yes. It says Kiva had how many sons? Come on, you know your Bible? Seven sons. If you read Acts 19, most of the headings say Skiva and his seven sons. Paul, this happened at Ephesus, remember? Paul taught at Ephesus for three years, day and night. And the Bible says the word of the Lord is growing. And in that same culture, he's performing many mighty works, miracles. And besides being an Old Testament high priest, Skiva is also a, an exorcist. And his sons. The Bible says they were practicing exorcists. In other words, they drove demons out of people for a business. And they got paid for it. How's that? Right? In, in some parts of the world, you'll be a millionaire if you do that. Right? Lots of demons everywhere. <laughs> the Bible says this. This is what it says. It says, when they saw the miracles that Paul was doing compared to their works, they prayed for a demon-possessed man and said this to the man. The son says, I adjure you by Jesus that Paul preaches. Come out. This Jesus that that man Paul is preaching, come out. The Bible says the demonic rose up and stripped all of them naked and drove them out of the city. They were and what the Bible says, and this became known in the whole of Asia, in all of Ephesus rather. It became, it was on CNN if you would. Right? God was bringing, he was defrocking. Everyone say defrock. To take off one's clothes is to take off the authority of somebody. Clothes depict mantles of grace and anointing. Right? So God was, God was publicly judging a system that had fathers and sons, but not accurate. Not relevant to the present demand or the word that God was emphasizing in, in Paul's day. They wanted Paul's results. I adjure you by Jesus that Paul preaches come out. They wanted the results of the true without a desire to, to, to be transformed into the true themselves. It's a false system. Now Egypt likewise is like that. If you come to a church... Egypt could be a representation of a church in the modern world. If you come to a church in our time, it could be very well be a house of bondage, a bayith of bondage. Still fathers and sons, but if the father of that house is not intent on developing each son into the fullness of Christ, the, the father and the son has got no representation in the spirit. Paul, even the demons say, the, the demons responded to, 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 the, to the seven sons. What did they say? They said, Paul, oh, by the way, Paul, we know, yeah, tick. Jesus, we know, tick. Yeah, but who are you guys? Where? You don't even have a record up here in the, the unseen world. Do you know every single one of you should have a, re a representation in the spirit? Demons should know who you are. Right? The angels should recognize, oh, Randolph is at it again. Right? Never ever come to the place where, listen carefully, and this I say as a prophetic statement to this house. What we're going to see in Durban and in the rest of the world in the coming months and years, 
is sometimes the public humiliation of inaccurate systems. The Bible says this was known throughout, became public knowledge, and many people began to believe, both Jews and Greeks. But also on a private level, God will embarrass you, sometimes publicly humiliate you, if you're going to continue to parade the pot without experiencing the reality of what you purport. You can say it, I'm a son, but if it's not real, you have no authority in the unseen world. You don't even, you don't even recognize. For some people, not even demons know them. Hmm? <laughs> Please don't talk to demons. You see this on TV. Um, I flip the channels sometimes, and the, the extra channels on DSTV, you will see. That is totally unbiblical, ungodly. Don't go into that realm. Right? But the point is, they will recognize an authentic son of God. Remember Jesus, when he came to the, to the demonic at Gadara? Without saying anything, the man saw him from a distance, and he says, Jesus, son of God, what have, we, what have you to do with us? Have you come to torment us? Right? There's a recognition. I want to encourage you, don't fear the demonic. They fear you. You must not fear them. Egypt, uh, if you know its history, was riddled, was rooted in the magic arts. The demonic was the order of the day. Even when Moses threw his staff down, it became a snake. Pharaoh said, no big deal, what's this? We can do this with our eyes closed. Call my mag magicians and let them do the, the same. That access to the domain of darkness to perform acts that would impress men. Right? And you know that the snake of Moses devoured the serpents of the, of the, those magic magicians. <laughs> Let me say magi. <laughs> They're not the magi. <laughs> and I want to encourage you that God's going to set apart the true from the fake. God's going to just make a distinction between that which is authentic and that which is not. But Egypt represents this domain, listen carefully, that keeps the son impoverished and doesn't facilitate his development to, to fullness. I said to you also last week that um, bondage makes you reluctant. Egypt makes you reluctant to pursue the path of freedom and your prophetic destiny. And I, I quoted a lengthy passage to you from Exodus chapter 6, verse 1 to 9, where eight times God says, eight times, let me just quote a few of them to you. Um, God says, verse 1, now you see what I will do. He's talking to Moses. Moses, now you're going to see what I will do to Pharaoh. Verse 5, verse 6, I will deliver you from their bondage. Verse 6 again, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. Verse 7, I will take you for my people. I will be your God. You will know that I am the Lord. Verse 8, I will bring you to the land which I swore to Jacob. I will give it to you. I am the Lord. Eight times God says what he's going to do, it's going to be his doing. This is the Lord's doing and it's 
marvelous in our eyes. I will do it, I will do it, I will do it. And God, uh, Moses comes to the people and the Bible says, Moses spoke thus to the sons of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses on account of their despondency and their cruel bondage. It's amazing. Eh? What is the number eight? The number of new beginnings. God is literally saying to Israel, you're about to enter a new beginning. I'm going to close one season and usher you into a brand new phase. I will do it sovereignly by my hand. Is that good news or what? That's, that's brilliant news. Especially if you, if, if, if you were a slave, your father was a, fl- a slave, your grandfather was a slave, your great-grandfather was a slave, your great-great-grandfather was a slave, your great-great-great-grandfather was a slave, your great-great-great-great-grandfather was a slave, your great-great-great-great-great-grandfather was a slave, your great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather was a slave. And you maybe go back one or two generations before. A generation is 40 years, not so. 400 years, 10 generations go back. All your family knew you were slavery all your life. Somebody comes to you and says, Hey, the time is up. God is going to do something sovereign. We are out of here. God's going to re- break slavery, release us into sonship. Is that great news? Yes, it is. But Moses comes and he tells them this. The Bible says they did not listen to him because of their bondage, their cruel bondage. And their despondency. Now the word despondency in the original Hebrew is shortness of spirit. Shortness of spirit. Your body, soul and spirit. Discouragement is felt mostly in your soul. Your soul is your mind, your will and your emotions. In the realm of the soul, that's why David said, Why art thou downcast, O my soul? Put your hope in. God, when you are in despair and in discouragement, the soul basically is in great despondency. But the soul is despondent because the spirit has lost its proper place and function. If your spirit is short, do you remember when the queen of Sheba beheld Solomon's glory? And the Bible says she almost fainted. Some versions say, and there would seem as if there was no spirit in her. Now, when you, when you die, your spirit leaves your, your body. The body without the spirit is dead. And when you faint, it's like, in a sense, symbolically, courage leaves you. And you, are, you have the incapacity, not being able, to, re, to, to be a person full of courage. So discouragement, the opposite, will enter. When your spirit man is so um, affected because you've allowed 430 years of slavery to so make your soul lean and impoverished and disempowered, that when even when a good word from God comes, God's going to do this, I will, I will, I will. You can't even respond to that. Simply because of the long-standing historical bondage to which you succumb to. Now it requires a deliberate, conscious effort on your part to believe God in those circumstances. You've got to say, Lord, despite my circumstances, I'm going to break out of this. I'm going to break out of this. You know why? Your bondage can make you reluctant to pursue the path of freedom. 
right? Um, you can, a caged animal can be incarcerated, imprisoned. Even a little budgie at home, in a, in a, in a, in a, if, if, you, if you imprison it for, for so long and you leave the door open, it sees freedom but cannot venture there because all it knows is bondage. Good news stands and beckons you to come out. But cruel bondage has got this effect. It makes one disinclined to pursue freedom, even when freedom is presented. And I want to encourage us, don't let your current level of disempowerment, bondage, restriction, and limitation so characterize your life that it becomes the predominant feature of your thinking in terms of what you consider life to be like. And you don't reach up for something higher and better because this realm is all you know. And in your mind, listen carefully to me, and in your mind you think this is all I will impart to my kids. I grew up like this. They will in their time. Right? That is thinking like an Egyptian slave. Because good news is at hand that God wants to liberate you to a higher order. But sometimes your conditions, which have been so long-standing, limit you in terms of what is possible. Tell your neighbor, all things are possible. I want to, I just feel in the spirit God is saying, I want to present to you a different order of life. I'm bringing to your mind something to reach up higher for. I'm consistently reaching out upward for something higher and further. For life and its cruelty. You know what? Mara, uh, uh, what's her name? Naomi said. Naomi said, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. What does Naomi mean? Good, pleasant, agreeable. Don't call me this good, pleasant, happy, high-spirited person. My husband just died. My two sons died. We've lost everything in the land of Moab. I left uh, Bethlehem, probably a multimillionaire. Went to the land of Moab, which is what father? A land that despises the need for spiritual fathering. I've lost everything. So life circumstances have embittered me. That's why you must deal with the root of bitterness. Hebrews 12 says, if there's something that is a grace killer, it's bitterness. Hebrews says, see to it that no root, see to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. That no root of bitterness suddenly spring up in you. And thereby many people in your world or your context are, are defiled. I want to encourage you, never become angry. Maybe next week I'll talk in, in short, in brief. I wrote a little note on anger, murmur, and complaint. Three things you must stay away from. Don't be angry. Don't complain. Don't murmur. The Bible uses the word grumble. Right? I'll talk about the grumble versus the groan. There were four factors which I'll talk about next week. That suntuleo, the, the, the Hebrew word, the Greek is like come to a head. Four factors converge just before the Passover to release them from, from Egypt. One of the factors, God said, the reason why I'm doing this, God says, I've heard the groan of my people. But if the grumble is there, the groan cannot be heard. You're either grumbling or you're groaning for your sonship. And Romans 8 says, we groan, we don't grumble. Even all of creation is groaning for what? For the manifestation of the, of the sons of God. I will demonstrate to you, the grumble 
in the unrenewed area of the soul that leads to murmur and complaint is a satanic substitute for a true groan that should issue forth from your spirit. And usually when things are going bad in your life, you tend to want to murmur. But I want to encourage you, it's an opportunity for you to groan for what you know is truly yours. No more groaning, no more grumbling. More groaning. Tell your neighbor no more grumbling. No more grumbling. In fact, grumbling was one of the most singular things that hampered Israel after the exodus. The moment they came out, the groan stopped, developed into a grumble, and God says, fine, 40 years. Postpone the destiny, right? For, for, for 40 years. Okay, we'll talk about that. That's a forthcoming attraction. I just thought I'd give you a preview so that you can start the process. Amen? Please check one another. Spouses, the moment your hubby or your wife starts to groan, say, is that a grumble or a groan? What am I hearing? Am I hearing grrr or groan? What is coming forth from the spirit? Because if it's grumble, right, you're gonna, you are stopping the destiny of this family. Tell your wife, tell your husband, tell your kids, you're stopping, you're impacting the sphere. I don't want more grumbling. Let a groan emit and send to, to the Lord. Amen? Um, God says, and there are three other factors which I'll talk about. Uh, next week, oh, I don't want to deviate too much. If I mention them, I'm going to be tempted to start to explain them. Okay? But God says, I've heard a cry. I've heard a, a groan. And brethren, life is not fair, but God is still good. In this life, Jesus says, don't be under any misnomer. You will have tribulation. It's to be expected. Hard times are part, part for the course, as it were. But you must know in whom you have believed. It's a satanic ploy to use trying circumstances to affect God's people so much that they stop at a realm beneath what God has destined them uh, for. And I want to encourage you. Grow up. Mature. How long were they in... Bondage for how many years? 430 years. What was God's original plan that for the time to be in bondage? 400 years. You'll find that in Genesis 15. God prophesied this to Abraham. You will be in your, your people. No, there's no people. Eh? There was not even an Isaac yet. God is telling the father of the nation things that are going to happen after he's dead. And when, when Abraham heard that, the Bible says a deep darkness came over him. Theologians call this the dark night of his soul. He became so overwhelmed to think that this thing that I'm going to birth, they're going to end up in another nation that will treat them cruelly. And God says, but, but after 400 years, I will deal harshly with that nation and I will bring them back into this land. Right? So there was knowledge. Now, next week also, if time permits, I will explain to you the is it 400 years or it is 430 it depends from what time you date certain things from but beyond that I just think 30 years represents what maturity not so Jesus was how old at the river Jordan when John baptized him he was 30 
Maturity represents 30. A functioning priest in the Old Testament had to be at least 30 years old. So 30 represents the number of maturity. So God had to wait for maturity to develop in the nation before he could release them. If you view it from that perspective, the original plan was 400 years, but they came out 430 years, then God had to wait for maturity to develop in the nation. Do you know what is holding up your breakthrough, your level of maturity? God is waiting for the sons to mature because, because only the son, the Uios, gets to handle his inheritance. But so long as the heir is a child, he differs no more than a slave, Galatians 4. But is in need of guardians and tutors until the time set by the, by the, by the father. So I want to encourage you. I said to you that, that Egypt has, has got this effect. Things have normalized uh, in your world and have so entrenched themselves as your norm. They become normative. They become the order of the day. They become your reality. They become the life you know and you don't know any other way. What is abnormal becomes a norm. What is totally beneath the standard of God becomes your standard based on your reality. When there's a higher order that's waiting for you. So don't settle and make normal what is abnormal. Rather reach out for the original of God's design for your life. And you will know this internally. I speak to you as individuals. I speak to us as a house. I speak to you as private young people, as, as married couples. I speak to you young men, I speak to young women, I speak to old people alike. Every single one of us has got to break through from the present state of some level of bondage into a new state of freedom that God has got in store for us. You will know what these things mean to you personally in your heart. And I just think that this series on on coming fully into our sonship identity as the firstborn sons of God and using Egypt, uh, the release of Israel from Egypt as a case study is prophetic for our time. It's time to break free into a new and higher order of life that God has got in store for you. Do not settle. Do not resign your life to what presently persists. And you think that all no more. You'll be amazed at what is waiting for you. God said to Israel, the land that I'm leading you into is not like the land of Egypt. He said that to them. It's not like the realm you know, where you watered your gardens with your foot. They used pumps to irrigate river water from the, the Nile to water small fenced-in gardens. God says you watered your gardens with your foot. By this pump action developed by the Egyptians. God says the land that I'm leading you into is not like that. It's a land flowing. Everyone do this. It's a land flowing with hills and valleys. It, this plateau sameness of flatness of Egypt is what you know. Sameness. Where would you want to live? Some flat plateau place or some land flowing with Hills and valleys and mountaintops and scenery and lushness. God says, I'm leading you. You know, God wants to break the staleness of your life. 
Some people's life are just stale. Starting to smell now, please. <laughs> I say that in jest. There are certain aspects of my life that I know is stale. I'm saying you've got to break out. I am tired of sameness. You wake up every day and it's the same landscape you're viewing. The same view you have of things. But God says, hey Israel, change your perspective because the land that I'm leading you into is a land flowing with hills and valleys that will be watered, not with your foot, it will be watered by the heavens. Dew from the heavens. And it says, the eyes of the Lord your God are always upon that land. Always watchful. The oversight, uh, personal oversight of the Lord um, is, is there. Then I said to you, Egypt also represents a realm that entraps you because it produces fear. Right? And two, we heard it twice this morning in Hebrews 11. Moses' parents, when they saw that Moses was a goodly or a beautiful child, the Bible says they hid him for how long? They hid him for three months. And the Bible says not fearing. Everyone say not fearing. Right? So not fearing the wrath or the edict or the decree of the king. They functioned from a place of fearlessness. And if you're ever going to be delivered from long-standing historical bondage, first thing you've got to break is the element of fear. Break even the inclination to fear. What time, David said, I am afraid I will start to trust in? To trust in you. And do you know that the bedrock of fear is what? When was fear mentioned in the scripture for the first time? Where do we find it? Surface in the Bible. Right in the garden. When Adam disconnected from his father. And the Lord, the Bible says, uh, they sinned and they made uh, clots to cover their nakedness. And the Lord, the Bible says, he heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the midst of the garden. And the Bible says he hid himself. For the very first time in the whole Bible, and in the experience of man, we find him hiding from an entity. But this entity is not just an entity, it's his father. The Bible says in Luke's genealogical account of Jesus, it mentions how Jesus came to being. It says, and this is the record of the, of the, of the genealogy of Jesus. It was supposedly that Mary and Joseph were his fathers and traces who their fathers were right back to Adam. When it comes to Adam... And it says, and Adam, the son of God. Right? Adam doesn't have a natural father. It references Adam as who? Who is his father? God is his father. So in sinning, he disconnects from father. The voice and the sound that he was so accustomed to up to that point. The voice that he enjoyed. The voice that clothed him. The voice that empowered him. Now he is shrinking back, hiding in fear from that same dynamic that was designed to fuel him. Simply because of disobedience. Do you know disobedience is the root of all fear? If you can develop 
do you know that your confidence toward God is even uh, because you please Him? You know yourself when you disobey God. Can you confidently come before Him in your prayer? Your confidence is eroded, not so. This is the confidence we have, First John says, that if we ask anything in His name, we know that He hears us and we have the petitions that we desire of Him. He always hears us because we always do those things that please Him. And I want to encourage you, um, all fear will leave you if you focus on maintaining your relationship with Father God. The moment that is severed, you place yourself as a, outside of His auspices or His, his oversight, His governance, His, his care, um, his, his loving kindness, His word, and you place yourself in a position of great vulnerability to the negative soulish emotion called fear. And for the very first time, Adam experienced this strange feeling he's never ever had in his entire, and I don't know how long that was. It could have been years and years before the first sin. It wasn't immediate. I don't know how long it was, but for the first time, he found himself running away from his creator. For the first time, he finds himself running away from father. Someone he should run to, he is now running back. And the enemy looks for the loophole and instills, injects him with a huge dose of fear. I was fearful and so I hid myself. And I want to encourage you to maintain your connection with God. Fear, I know there's no more fear. If a lion comes in here right now, let's say, just imagine, what would you do? Hmm? Where, what window are you breaking here? Where are you climbing? I'll be on top of that speaker. I'll get there somehow. Right? You're not going to negotiate. Wow, what emotion am I going to feel now? There's the threat. There's, there are things like natural fear, which is not negative or demonic. It's a natural, instinctual thing that a human being will feel in, in, when you encounter the threat of danger. Right? I'm not talking about that. That's something I believe God... Uh, that in, that even that in itself, I believe, is an abnormality. It was never designed to be so, because we were designed to rule all things, all birds and and animals. That's a uh, that's a secondary result of the of the fall. But listen carefully. That's like normal fear, I call. But there's a fear that is demonic. What faith is to God, fear is to the devil. For God to work, he needs faith, he needs trust, he needs belief. For the devil to work, he needs to fear. Fear is fuel for Satan to do his work. If you can break fear and replace it with faith, you are empowered to do the will of the Lord. So, Moses' parents, okay, we're living in a land in which we were slaves, and this tyrant of a ruler, remember what does Pharaoh mean? Pharaoh's name means several things. Part of the meaning is destroyer. Me, I destroy everything. I could tell. Right? Um, this ruler has just issued an edict that every child must be killed. But this household does not fear. We will hide. And listen, they hid the boy 
um, at risk of their own lives. Because if they were found out, the entire family would have been killed. Because they saw something. This child has got prophetic destiny attendant with his life. Not fearing the wrath of the king. Moses, the Bible says, by faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king. Right? He, he acts by faith. He acts. Faith without works is dead. By faith, his act was, let me forsake a realm. Let me leave Egypt. Right? Let me leave Egypt. And uh, my leaving is an expression, or is facilitated rather by the fact that I do not fear the decree. I do not fear this, this power, this pharaohic system that is so intimidating. The Bible says that the fear of man is a snare. Anything you fear, you are in bondage to. Anything I taught you last week that you are overcome by, you are in bondage to. If you fear a thing, it will surely come to pass. Because your fear of it empowers or facilitates its fulfillment. If you break the fear, you break the possibility of it overcoming you. Right? You might experience some stuff, but you will never do so because of fear. What Job said, the thing that I feared has come, what? Has befalled me. I gave you the reference last week. I want to read this to you. Listen carefully. This is Job 3.25. Listen carefully. He said, just as it happened, he said, I'm reading from the King James, for the thing which I greatly feared, he didn't just fear it, it was a great fear within him. The thing that I greatly feared has come upon me, and that which I was afraid of has come unto me. The thing you fear, you empower to come to pass. As righteous and as godly as Job was, and he hated evil, upright in his day, yet he harbored a subtle fear within him. Every, any day, I could lose all my possessions. Even my whole family could be wiped out any day. It was a realm in which it was unsurrendered to God. Right? And this verse um, highlights this for us. Do you know how this reads? I did some study on this verse in the week. In the original Hebrew, this reads like this. For the fear that I fear has come upon me. The Bible uh, calls it the great fear. Do you have any great fear within you? I want to encourage you, replace it with faith. Replace it with trust in God. What time I am afraid, I will trust in you. Otherwise, the thing you fear, you empower. But if you can break it, you will be released to obey God in faith. Many times we are reluctant to move. By faith he forsook. So some people have no faith, gripped by fear. They get inert, stuck uh, in the same position. Simply because I fear. I won't start my business. What if it goes wrong? I fear. The fear you harbor empowers the thing not to come to pass. But if you can break the fear, faith will fuel the movement into the reality. Hmm? I'm afraid to get married. What if I get divorced? Right? I'm afraid to venture into the next relationship. What if that fails? 
the fear you harbor, you're already starting the whole process on the back foot. Right? Some of you need to break the fear uh, of potential happiness even in a, in a marriage or a relationship with somebody. Hmm? Tell your neighbor it's your right to be happy. Tell them this, it's your right. It's your God-given right to enjoy a good relationship. Come on, speak to them. Tell somebody. You just uh, uh, prophesy to them even further. Tell them this. By the way, actually, you deserve it. You deserve it. Don't venture, don't, don't, don't not venture into it based upon prior failure. Don't look at your history and say 430 years, we will never ever, me, this nation, inheritors, firstborn son, no ways. If you think like that, you will have that. But I want to encourage you, change your, change your mindset and change your thinking. You know what the Bible says? 1 John 4.18 says, fear has torment. Fear has torment. And the Greek word for torment is kolasis. Kolasis. Kolasis means punishment. If I say, are you afraid? What I'm saying is, are you in torment? Torment means the possibility of negative punishment coming upon me. Right? Of things not turning out the way that I thought they would. And I want to encourage you, break fear at all levels. If you're afraid to approach someone in authority, break that fear and make the appointment. Stand before them. You know what Elijah did before he, King Ahab? He said these words, O King, he came before the king. Oh, great, this is an ungodly man. One of the most worst kings Israel ever had, the northern kingdom. And he, he comes before him and he says, O King Ahab, the Lord before whom I stand has sent me. He's saying, I'm standing before you, but really it's the Lord before whom I'm standing. David can look Goliath in the eye and say, you come to me with spear and sword, but I stand before you in the name of the Lord. Right? External circumstances can intimidate you. Oh, king, the three Hebrew boys says, we will not bow to you, king of Babylon. We will not bow to you, even if our God does not deliver us. How's that? They say, even if our God does not deliver us, there's no way that we are bowing to the pressure and intimidation. And, and you, know, no, you don't do that to these Babylonian kings. But these guys were bold in their declaration. Now, here's the thing. Fear is not normal. Because God, uh, Paul said to his son Timothy, I want to read this, listen carefully. I want to read 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 6 to 8. Listen carefully. You, you must please remember, I'm going to start teaching Passover principles soon. But before you can celebrate the Passover, you've got to break the element of fear in the order of things. By faith, Moses did what? Forsook Egypt, not fearing the, the wrath of the king. By faith, he celebrated the Passover. Right? The Passover is celebrated after the fear is, is broken. Passover principles become powerful to the one that is fearless. In other words, you can't even celebrate Passover if there's a remnant of fear in you. In you know what Passover is? 
Have you girls packed? You packed? You packed? You packed? Halfway. Hey, Lord, I must talk to these people. <laughs> oh, no, no, you only got two more days, right? Passover was packing. God even said to them, when you celebrated, cel- sit with the staff in your hand. Sit with your shoes on. Sit with your waist girdled. Sit like you're ready to move at any time. Passover was your ticket out of here. But you can't sit there still asking questions at the table. Did Moses hear right? Discussing with your family. Hey, are we really out of here tonight? Did Moses hear right? Even make your song about it. He said, I am that I am sent me. Does he really know the God of Jehovah? We don't know this guy from a bar of blue soap. He was actually raised here for 40 years. 40 years in some backside of some desert under a man called Jethro. He saw, he heard a voice in some burning bush giving him instructions. Is this a loony guy or is he from God? You can't still be negotiating the night before the exodus. The night before the exodus, you had to have got a mindset ready to journey. No fear had to be even, uh, not even a residue, a remnant. Not even a last trace, you know, we drink, what's this thing? Barocca and uh, Calcivita. You know these effervescent tablets? Now, I don't like it. Right? But the doctor says I must have one every day. And especially the last part of the glass, we got like the remnants. <laughs> right? I don't like, especially that part I don't like, but it says all the goodness is there. <laughs> Sometimes, I call that the residue. Sometimes you might not even realize it, but there could be a subtle residue of fear left in you. It's not that you don't trust. You know God is on our side. You know that, especially for this church, we are in the transition phase. We're out of here. We're going places. But you might be harboring some subtle residual fears within you. What about 2015? Hey, what's going to happen? This is making me feel uneasy. Where to now? What about the business if you're in business? Uh, what about my plans for the future? What's going to happen? Tell your neighbor, extract every last remnant of that fear. Paul was a spiritual father to his son Timothy. Timothy was young, at least 30 years old. Somewhere between 17 and 30. But at least 30 years old, I believe, when he took charge of the church at Ephesus. By Jewish standards, young. Paul says to him, don't let any man, how does he say it? Despise your youth. Remember Paul said to him, don't let any man despise your youth, but as young as you are, my son, you be an example to the believers in faith, in purity. And there's about eight things there. That Timothy must stand up as the standard before in his world. Be, 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 be strong. Timothy also had a tendency for shyness. He was an introvert, remember? He wasn't your overt speaker, yet he was given this great role and responsibility. He also was prone to sickness. We don't know what sickness that young Timothy was was seriously prone to. Because Paul says to him, you're oft infirmities. Infirmities is not just a term for illness. In the Greek, it's a very strong term denoting some serious bodily affliction that this young son, Timothy, had. 
And Paul says, it's not just serious in terms of its quality, but it's so often, Timothy, that you have this, my son. And remember, of all his sons, Paul says of Timothy, you're my like-minded. You think like me. You got my soul and your soul. We are not. We're equally sold. So he had a lot of negatives going for him, against him, rather. He's young. He's prone to shyness. He's an introvert. Um, he's often sick. Paul even says to him, Timothy, use a little wine for your stomach's sake, for your oft infirmities. Right? Some people, that's the only part of the sermon you're going to hear. For your oft infirmities. Dr. Siggy has an interesting take on this. <laughs> he said, as far as he is concerned, from his medical knowledge, wine doesn't do anything for oft infirmities. <laughs> This is a joke. Please, not serious. He said, Paul was encouraging Timothy to forget his problems. <laughs> oh, this is a joke. Tell your neighbor it's a joke. <laughs> um, but, now, so here's this guy, great responsibility, noble purpose, great sense of divine assignment, attended with young Timothy's life. Paul is encouraging his son. Let's read 2 Timothy chapter 1, 6-8. For this reason, I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us the spirit of timidity. King James says the spirit of fear. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity or fear, but of power, of love, and of a sound mind. The New American Standard says, of power, of love, and of discipline. So what is, it says, therefore, do not be ashamed. Now when you fear, you have a tendency to shrink back in shame. You don't stand up for what you believe. But sometimes the fear of man does this to you. You'll even compromise things you know to be true because you fear people. Because you want to be accepted by, by them. Not so. The little girl asked Peter, aren't you one of his disciples? Remember? And how many times did Peter deny the Lord? Out of fear, he, 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 he stands apart from what he knows to be true because fear governed his life based upon the possibility of terror or a negative outcome of punishment. Right? And I want you, even in Galatians 2, remember this? When certain high-ranking Jews came from James in Jerusalem to the province of Galatia, and they preached that you need to be circumcised in addition to accepting Christ as personal Savior to make your salvation valid. And Peter now is, is there. And the Bible says when Peter heard that certain, everyone say certain, and it's high-ranking, certain high-ranking Jews from Jerusalem are coming to Galatia, the Bible says he stopped eating with the Gentile Christians. And he disassociated himself from them. And he only sat at mealtimes with Jews. And here's the reason. Galatians 2 says, For fearing them which were from the circumcision. He is an apostle. This is not an ordinary believer. He is now an apostle of Christ. And even apostles of Christ, if they're not careful, can adjust their behavior, compromise principles, which they know to be true, simply to gain acceptance with men. Right? And the Bible says, and he acted hypocritically. Tell you, don't be a hippo. 
Hypocrite, hypocrisis, the Greek word. It was a, a term used for theaters, open amphitheaters in Greek times, where they would stage drama and you play a part. And usually in those days, you, you know, the mosque, you've seen that? Like a, they hold like a stick and there's a mask. Each mask was different. So the person would play a part, assume a false identity. Right? That was the hypocrite. It was the hypocrisis, the Greek term, to describe an actor on a stage. So Peter began to act a part that he truly was not in reality, simply because of fear. I told you last week, remember Abram lied to the king that Sarah was his sister? His son uh, Jacob as well would do the same thing. Isaac, sorry, would do the same thing. He would lie that Rebecca was his sister because kings desired them. The fear of the consequences forced them to lie and compromise principles. Now Paul says this to his son Timothy. God has not given us a spirit of fear. So is fear a spirit? Question, is fear a spirit? It's not the Holy Spirit, so what kind of spirit is fear? I believe personally there is a demon, a demonic host or entity whose name is fear, whose sole task it is, is to instill fear in believers. For where there's fear, there cannot be faith. And where there's fear, you are paralyzed, you are motionless to, to, to move into the purposes of, of God. The young Timothy got so many negatives going against him. And he had, you know, the, 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 Greek, the Greek word for fear here, I've got something in my notes, oh, yes, yeah. is delia, or delia, right? Delia. It denotes a coward. The New American Standard or timidity. The New American Standard translated as timidity. God has not given us a timid spirit. Right? Now I'm not talking about the nature of your personality. There's some people that are just quiet. By nature, there's some people that are the life of the party. You can hear them come a mile away that they're coming. Right? There's some extroverts and some introverts. But this is not that. This is talking about... In fact, Delia means a coward. What do cowards do when the heat is on? Balega. Kick down. Run away from the battle. Right? Remember the old days at school when the fight is on? Right? And the guy who is really fearful but doesn't want to make it appear to his friends that he's riddled with fear, what does he say? Come, come, hold me back, manners, hold me back, manners. If you don't hold me back, I'm going to sort of, and he's praying to God, I hope they hold me back. <laughs> or else, if they don't, and then he's, he runs away, right? Don't fear. Now, here's the thing, the very next verse. Listen carefully. Maybe perhaps next week I'll talk about the antidotes to fear, just briefly. How do you deal with it? Because fear is a demonic entity. It's a spirit. God, the Bible says, has not given us that spirit. We have a spirit of what? Of firstly, in order, in sequential order, it's power, it's love, and it's a sound mind or well-disciplined, or the Greek is well-balanced thinking. Disciplined mentality. If you simply study that verse... There are three antidotes there to fear. Power, love, and a sound mind. 
Briefly, I will talk next week about perfect love will cast out all fear. All fear can be cast out by the state of being perfected in the love of God. Right? If you know God's love for you and more so your love for others, there's nothing you will not be able to do. Because perfect love does what to all fear. What did David say? I sought the Lord and he heard me and he delivered me from all my fear. I'll give you the reference. Psalm 34 verse 4. I love this verse. He says, I sought the Lord. He heard me and he set me free. Not from some fear. He set me free from all of my fear. And some of you fear obeying God in certain respects. Don't fear even obeying God. Because you say, if we obey, what about the consequences? Leave that to God. So long as you perfect your obedience. For if you love God, you will do His word. Amen? Amen. 